We can say with a pretty high degree of confidence that at least half of the observed global sea level change would not be happening without human-caused greenhouse gas emissions. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we dig into the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report, released this past August. CSIS Energy Program Director Joseph Mikett talks with Dr. Robert Kopp, a climate and sea level scientist and a professor at Rutgers University. Dr. Kopp is also a lead author on the IPCC report. He and Joseph dive into some of the climate science and modeling that supports the IPCC report, as well as the communications challenge for a report of this scale. I'll turn it over to Joseph now to lead the conversation. Welcome. We are joined today by Bob Kopp, who is a professor in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Rutgers University, an expert in sea level rise and assessment of climate change risk at Rutgers. He also directs the Coastal Climate Risk and Resilience Initiative and has led a lot of work on how we think about regional climate risks related to sea level rise. Pursuant to our conversation today, Bob was the lead author on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report. And so we'll have an opportunity to ask him a few questions about what in that report is novel and new and and highly interesting to him. And also on a personal note, Bob was on my PhD examination committee, which means any conversation with him just raises my blood pressure slightly. Thank you for joining us today, Bob, and uh, welcome to the CSIS podcast. So I wanted to get right into it. Before we get into details on this most recent assessment report, it's been, I think, six or seven years since the last one came out. This really gives us the big picture. What can climate scientists agree on at the moment? Before we get into the you as a producer of a portion of that report, I'm actually interested in you as a consumer. So, you know, when you look at areas outside your area of immediate expertise, what have you seen in this report? It's been out for several months. What has caught your eye as new, notable, or has affected your understanding of climate change, either human cost or natural? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been enmeshed in the report for about three years. So I'm not sure my, the report being released has changed much of my understanding, but I do think the report has done has emphasized a few things that have changed over the last eight years, most notably around the science of climate change attribution, right? So one of the key findings of the report is that the evidence allowing us to tie extreme weather events, so things like heat wave or intense rainfall or drought or wildfires or coastal flooding to the effects of human greenhouse gas emissions has become much stronger, probably in 2013, when the last assessment report came out, you know, we were still saying, well, you can't really tie any single weather event to climate change. But one of the things that's changed is there's been a lot of work saying, well, how has climate change affected this particular event? And, you know, I know in the U.S., we've had a lot of extreme weather events over the last few months. And we think we can be pretty confident that those events were made worse as a result of climate change. Sort of one almost trivial example from my personal experience, the remnants of Hurricane Ida came through New York and New Jersey earlier this month, earlier in September. And, you know, they had intense rainfall that caused 
unprecedented flooding in many regions, including my basement. And because it only flooded to a couple of inches, I, I'm pretty confident saying that climate change flooded my basement. Without that additional boost from the warmer, moister atmosphere, we wouldn't have had that flooding in my basement. And I think that's an example. And related to that, I saw that today, or maybe yesterday, that George Mason University's uh, Center for Climate Change Communication had new results out showing that for the first time, a majority of Americans think that climate change is harming people in the U.S. today. I don't know, you know how much the IPCC report contributed to that or whether it was just lived experience, but I think that's an important and substantial change compared to a decade ago that number was closer to around 30%. Yeah, that's been a really uh, interesting shift that that I've seen too. I mean, I as you know, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. There was this incredible heat wave there in June. And if you look at the attribution studies, which kind of give you a statistical assessment of how likely would that event have been or how much more likely was such an extreme event made by climate change or the or human-caused warming, it seems relatively clear that the sort of time scale over which you would expect such an extreme heat wave in the Pacific Northwest is sort of longer than natural cycles of global climate, right? Like it kind of gives you this way of saying this is an event that wouldn't have happened without the presence of, of climate change to a relatively high degree of confidence. Is that like a reasonable way to express that? Yeah, I think that's spot on. And you know, this new IPCC report uses the term unprecedented quite a bit, right? That global surface temperature has risen since 1970, faster than any time in at least 2,000 years and probably considerably longer. Um, our work at Rutgers uh, has shown that global sea level rose faster over the 20th century than any time in at least 3,000 years. Of course, carbon dioxide concentrations are higher than they've been in a couple million years. So there are these unprecedented global scale shifts, and they're translating into these intensification of extreme weather that, that people are really feeling and seeing, I think, in their daily lives in a much greater way than they were a few years ago. Yeah, it's interesting. It'll be very interesting to see how well calibrated public opinion goes. I mean, one of the things that your mind sort of goes to next is like, how many of these events that have happened in the preceding 20 or 30 years, since all of this is sort of a continuous march of, of global warming, was there some small signal that at the time we weren't able to observe because of measurement shortfalls, modeling, et cetera. As you look forward, presumably these sorts of events, this, this climate impact that we can attribute in individual events will become more pervasive and more extreme. Do you expect to see that in other phenomena besides what we've talked about? Or do you think that our ability to kind of constrain the degree of human influence on particular events will just be refined? I think both, right? So there are certain sorts of extreme weather events where the drivers are what we would call thermodynamic, either literally or, or sort of metaphorically, right? So things like extreme heat waves, right? That's a fairly straightforward connection because uh, you know on a warmer planet, you have more intense heat waves. Intense rainfall, right? Warmer planet, warmer atmosphere, more water vapor in the more atmosphere, more intense rainfall. Drought, you know, the easier connection is hotter temperatures, more evaporation, more drought. Coastal flooding, right? So higher temperatures, more larger ocean, ocean takes up more volume, um, melting ice sheets higher, lead to higher sea level, leads to more extreme coastal flooding. And then there are, are more complicated phenomena that have to do with atmospheric dynamics, right? And so that's where a lot of the harder questions are, right? So how is high latitude circulation changing? How is that causing storm systems or, or weather systems to last for longer? There's some evidence, you know, for hurricanes, right, that they're moving more slowly and intensifying more rapidly. And 
the rapid intensification is, is sort of a thermodynamic thing, but the more slowly moving is really a dynamic thing. And so that, you know, a lot of the frontier in this research area is sort of the, the dynamic question. So moving from this sort of bulk global scale effect to more detailed local changes, I think we're going to see the more research on that over the next few years. Well, and, and I think that broader categorization probably works in your own field as well. If we can turn to sea level rise, where you were a lead author on the sea level and oceans chapter of this most recent report, and you kind of hinted at the first finding I wanted to ask you about. This report says that sea level rose faster in the 20th century than in any prior century over the last 33 millennia. I think it would be helpful to kind of understand both what that finding says, the science behind it, and its implications for our understanding of the human impact you didn't see or as seen in sea level. Yeah, so this is a result that comes out of the work of the paleo sea level community and the key to what that community does, and I'm a part of this and my collaborators are, they're finding what we call proxies in the geological record, the things that have a relationship between something we can see today, like the fossils in salt marsh sediments and something that relates to sea level. So for the salt marsh example, which is a particularly important one, when we look at sea level over the last few thousand years, different sorts of um, small organisms called foraminifera live in different parts of the tidal zone. So if you look at a pile of sediments, you can figure out where in the tidal zone a layer formed. And then if you use something like carbon-14 dating or pollutions horizons or something like that, you can figure out how old it was when it formed. And then you look at where it is and you can reconstruct local sea level records. So what our group does is sort of use statistical approaches to take these records from around the world and say, okay, well, what, what's happening at the global scale? And that allows us to place current global sea level change in context. And so the key finding is that, you know, we can say that at least since 1000 BC, the 20th century was faster than any prior century. So far, the 25th century has been a lot faster. We're approaching from 1900 to 1970, the average rate of sea level rise was about 1.2 millimeters per year. Now we're pushing around four millimeters per year. And there's been sort of a sustained acceleration since about 1970. Did something change in 1970 or is this sort of we're realizing acceleration by changes in measurement systems or, or other? It seems to be a, a physical change, right? That That's coming not just from the geological record, which you know is sparse, but also the tide gauge record, which we can more directly measure. And the, the satellite record, which is basically consistent with that, doesn't come in until the 1990s. So actually, this is one of the new findings over the last three or four years is that the acceleration that we can see in the satellite record since the early 1990s, we can see in the tide gauge record that it extends back at a very similar level to about 1970. Now, of course, that, that in itself is already accelerated, right? So up until the late 19th century, global mean sea level was probably flat or even maybe even slightly falling. So there's acceleration that started earlier in the Industrial Revolution, but then it's really been picked up and sustained over the same period that we've seen an acceleration of global warming for the same reasons. And we were talking earlier about attribution on individual events, but what can we say about the attribution of this observed sea level rise or its acceleration to the human climate impact, greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, so you know we can say with a pretty high degree of confidence that at least half of the observed global sea level change would not be happening without human-caused greenhouse gas emissions, and it might well be that the number is closer to 100%. Is it you know not quite as high 
a percentage that we can be confident of as we can with temperature, where the best estimate is about 100%. And that's because in addition to the Industrial Revolution, another thing that was happening was the end of the Little Ice Age, right? So we have some early 20th century glacier retreat that's associated with the, the sort of natural phenomena. And so the, the challenge with attribution is sort of untangling that and sea level and ice sheets respond more slowly to changes in greenhouse gases than temperature. But at least half of what we've seen roughly can be attributed. And and the further we look into the 21st century, the more that approaches 100%. Is there work trying to assess attribution of, of acceleration, like a, you know, a second derivative, or is it too hard to get at that question? Well, I mean, so so the easiest way to get at that is by really looking at the underlying processes. So over the last 25 years or so, that acceleration has been in large part due to an accelerating loss from the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets. And so the question is really, how do we attribute those? And Greenland ice sheet, that, that's somewhat clearer than the Antarctic ice sheet because for the same reason that, that Greenland is sort of an easier system to project than Antarctica, is that Antarctica, a lot of the melt is happening at the interface or is driven by what's happening at the interface between the ocean and the ice sheet. And just oceans are more complicated and undergo more changes in circulation, for instance, than the land. So it's a little more complicated, but one can make a pretty strong circumstantial case from the fact that we're you know, clearly having an unprecedented acceleration that has brought us to unprecedented in the last few thousand years, rates of sea level rise that we've seen over the same period that we've had unprecedented increase in global temperature, this acceleration of loss from Greenland and from West Antarctica. And so, I mean, I think that the, the circumstantial case is, is pretty clear. And basically all of the components that are driving sea level, except for the Antarctic, you know, we have a pretty clear like formal attribution analyses showing showing human influence. Antarctica is also complicated because in addition to what's going on at the edge of the ice sheet in West Antarctica, we also have this warmer, more moist atmosphere that causes more intense precipitation, including more snowfall, which is leading to um, growth in some parts of the East Antarctic ice sheet. So you've just got these, you know, some increase, some decrease, and it's more complicated. Yeah, you, you kind of already touched on this, but one of the things that I've taken away as a consumer of AR6 is that the evidence for acceleration of sea level rise is actually, at this point, fairly compelling. I would say AR5, there seemed to be some ambiguity about the rate of sea level rise that we were measuring at that time compared to signals earlier in the 20th century or even backing into the 19th century. But now it seems like that ambiguity, both because we have a longer time series, probably, but also, you know, multiple observational techniques and probably refined data analysis techniques all seem to point toward acceleration, both in between data sets, within particular kinds of data sets. And my guess is that leads to a lot of confidence on the part of the IPCC authors. Is that a reasonably well thought out idea? Yeah, I think that's fair, right? We have the satellite altimetry showing us acceleration. Now we can say, and couldn't as clearly before, that is consistent with the tie gauge record going back to 50 years. We can say, okay, we see it also over in the Greenland and Antarctica. Because of the Greenland and Antarctic acceleration combined with the glacier melt, the last sort of decade and a half is the first time that land ice melt has been the dominant term in sea level rise, since the, at least since the beginning of the 20th century. Oh, interesting. So that analogy of like the the melting ice cube in the glass of water versus tossing ice into the glass of water is like adding water to the oceans has been the principal driver of increasing sea level rise. 
So the other big term, right, is the expansion of water in the ocean as it warms. And, you know, that's now uh, probably about a third of the overall uh, sea level rise compared to about half from the combination of the polar ice sheets and the glaciers. Interesting. So one of the obvious implications of accelerating sea level rise is that we should expect more of it in the future than we've had in the past, if all the underlying dynamics remain the same. And one of the things I've noted, and I've seen you, you comment on previously, but I'd love to understand some more about, is that the sea level rise projections in AR6 seem to allow for higher degrees of sea level rise, let's say at the end of the 21st century, than previous assessments or even intermediate report have implied. Can you help me, help me understand what sits behind that? How are we viewing the risk profile of sea level rise over this coming century? Yeah, so let me look at it for a few ways. So, so there's both new science and also new thinking about how to communicate the science that drives that. So in this report, we distinguish between sort of two sets of processes contributing to sea level. One is what we call the, the set of processes in which we have at least medium confidence, right? So that means you know different multiple lines of evidence, multiple modeling approaches, giving us similar answers. So you know the understanding of how the oceans expand as they warm, right? We, that we've got a lot of different modeling approaches and thermodynamics underlying that. Surface mass balance, so understanding how glaciers and the tops of ice sheets melt or, or grow in response to, to higher temperatures and increasing snowfall. New, I think this time is that, you know, some elements of the interactions between the oceans and the ice sheets having to do with a process called marine ice sheet instability is increasingly well understood. And so all of those go into what we would consider sort of medium confidence projections, which considering those medium confidence uh, processes get us to around the most likely global sea level rise is around say 50 centimeters or so over the course of the century in a two degree world, going up to more like 70 centimeters in a three to four degree world. But the other thing we try to do is realize that you know, there are other processes in which we have low confidence that are on the frontier of the science that particular have to do with ice sheet responses to a warming planet. Those have to do with things like the instability of ice cliffs at where the ocean and ice sheets interact, particularly Antarctica, and also could do with things like albedo feedback. So the, the changes in the color of the ice sheet in Greenland. And so these processes, particularly under a much warmer world, you know, we can't rule out substantially higher, higher amounts of sea level rise. So in the highest emission scenario we looked at, drawing upon the full scope of literature, we couldn't rule out global sea level rise approaching two meters by 2100 and five meters in the middle of the 22nd century. But we could, by the, by the same token, those same sorts of analysis that tell us if we're in a world consistent with sort of two degrees of warming, you know, basically what we can't rule out is something more like a meter over the course of the century. So this sort of low confidence processes are particularly important as we go beyond the two degree threshold, but we aren't sure where, how far beyond we, we go. So that's sort of the new science that comes from a bunch of different lines of evidence. But the other thing we've done in this report is, is try to foreground that. And that's based on the lived experience of, of the scientists and the feedback we've got from stakeholders compared to from, from past IPCC assessment reports. So the key tables and figures in the fifth assessment report focused only on what we would call the medium confidence likely range. But they did say in the text of the sea level chapter, you could have sea level rise several tens of centimeters larger owing to potential instabilities in Antarctica, right? So, so it's not like this is totally out there. And in fact, you go back to the 1970s, people are concerned about this as well. What 
has happened over the last decade is there's been a lot more stakeholders trying to use the detailed C-level information. Um, I think that, you know, some of the authors like in this report, like me and Amy Slangen, you know, have been involved with a number of stakeholder groups on that. You know, and it's very clear that you may have those caveats in the text, but if you don't put them in your key figures and tables, nobody's going to notice them. And so, you know, I think we, we were thinking much more consciously of the fact that when we create figures and tables, we are creating what's sometimes called in the literature boundary objects. So you know, people coming from different perspectives are going to have discussions around. And if you don't put something you want people to understand in the boundary object, it's probably going to get lost, even if you have beautifully written caveats in the text. And so you know, we've made an effort in this report to ensure that when we're talking about sea level rise and the figures and the table and the summary for policymakers, we don't lose a point that under high emission scenario, we can't rule out these very high amounts of sea level rise approaching two meters by 2100. Anything like you know, there's so it's both the science and it's also the recognition that, you know, based on the what stakeholders are going to ask, that's important for risk management to know this information. And so you want to make a deliberate effort so that it doesn't get lost. There's so much in that answer that I want to dig into. There's like three things I'd like to just ask you briefly about on sea level rise. As I was kind of preparing for our talk today, reading through the chapter, at one of the one of the challenges I have with sea level rise is just actually fitting it into my imagination over the long term, right? So we we're talking about 2100, but sea level rise, even as warming stops, continues for a very long time. And in the IPCC report, it's written that committed global mean sea level rise over 2,000 years will be about four to 10 meters with a three degree centigrade peak warming. What sits behind that assessment? Obviously, times of in deep climate history where the earth has been warmer for a, a prolonged period of time, similar to what our great and, you know, our far ancestors may experience, there's been pretty large changes in sea level. But how do you think about four to 10 meters of sea level? You know, looking back, you know, hopefully humanity will be around and thriving at that time, but the map may look quite different. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's an important message that unlike some changes in the climate system, like global warming, we can't stop sea level rise because the oceans are such a large system. The ice sheets are such a large system. It's like steering a tanker, right? With temperature, like if we were to stop emitting carbon dioxide in, in tomorrow, we would stabilize global average temperature most likely within a decade or so. But we've banked a whole bunch of committed sea level rise. And, and you know, we know this in part by looking at the geological record, but also in part for, for modeling and, and sort of has with climate versus weather, it's actually sort of easier to model the responses of ice sheets over thousands of years than it is over a hundred years, right? Because the, you know some of the, the instability mechanisms that, that I mentioned, right, matter a lot for how fast we could go on a, on a centuries timescale, but actually don't matter all that much on a millennial timescale. They just get you to the sort of steady state faster. And so, you know, when we say like, when we think about say two meters of sea level rise, right? You know, we can't rule out getting to two meters by the end of the century under a world with unchecked fossil fuel emissions growth. But even if we stabilize the climate at uh, two degrees, we're almost certain to get there. And it's just a question that, you know, how, you know, it'll be many, many centuries, hopefully, before we do. Can I ask you, you know, I mean, geographically speaking, what does two meters of sea level rise look like in New Jersey, where you work? Right. So actually, that that's actually New Jersey sort of sort of complicated because it's a we have our we're a dynamic coastline, right? We've got salt marshes, we've got barrier islands, and so you know to some extent that's actually an area where how fast sea level rises matters 
at least as much as how much. Because uh, you know, there's some evidence from a number of different geological sources that things like salt marshes uh, and mangroves can do a pretty good job of keeping up with sea level rise up until about seven millimeters per year, right? So it's not just like the the, the land is not static; it responds. You know, so it's quite possible that limiting warming to two degrees C, the salt marshes on the Jersey Shore might be able to keep up with that. You know, barrier islands are even trickier because barrier islands want to move anyways. And so they're held in place with houses by human engineering efforts. And they have been for a century. Like, so if you look at Long Beach Island in New Jersey, like the southern half, which is not settled, is about to disconnect from the northern half because the southern half is not subject to the same sorts of beach replenishment efforts. So it's complicated. You know, it's a sort of story of like, you know, if you look somewhere where the, the land is, let, you know, sort of more rigid, like Manhattan, right? Well, then it's just more of a bathtub question. But I think there's a lot of interesting questions. We actually you know, are just launching a new major National Science Foundation initiative that involves uh, about a dozen universities, a $20 million coastlines and people's hub proposal called the Megalopolitan Coastal Transformation Hub, where we are looking at sort of the interaction between these changing coastal hazards, the changing of physical dynamics of the coastline and the changing social dynamics of, you know, how, how do different changes in risk affect where people live and how does that affect uh, municipal finances? How does that feed into decision-making? And so like all of these systems are, are complex and dynamic. And so it, it sort of forbids a hard answer to an easy answer to that question. But I think that's sort of where we are. We, you know, we can sort of get a intuitive grasp of what it looks like in 2000 years, but with a BASA model of sea level, but you know, people move, coastlines move, you actually need to look carefully at what you're looking at to make that meaningful. Are you confident in building the Cop family estate and entrusting it to future generations in the state of New Jersey? I'm fairly confident where we're living. You know, I think if we had a, a house on the Jersey Shore, uh, you know, I would be, you know, I, I think I, I would be probably not looking at it that way. I would be looking at it as an investment to enjoy for the short term, because even if you buy a house, you know, somewhere that looks from sort of a, a bathtub model, like it'll be pretty safe for a hundred years. The whole evolution of, you know, coastal settlements is going to affect the value of that house and what's around it, right? So let's say, you know, you're in somewhere like Seagirt, which is fairly high elevation, right? That That's not likely to, to be inundated. You know, it'll might have a little more, and we'll have a little more flooding in the past, but there, there's some pretty high parts there. But, you know, if the you know, the barrier islands are gone. The coast, I mean, it's just a whole dynamic system. And I think we, you know, it's sort of a system where we can't identify the endpoint a hundred years out. What we have to do is, is adaptively respond and really have dialogues at the community level and at the state level about what our choices are. And it's really about the people. And it has to be informed by the physical science, uh, but the people and the overall complex system of, of changing coastal hazards and changing landforms and changing social dynamics are really what's going to set the evolution of this. Yeah, one of the things I also observed in the in the AR6 evolution of climate assessment is a higher degree of regionalism in climate projections. There's this NASA website that has made available a bunch of stuff for, you know, regional information for climate projections, not just out to 2100, but I think over nearer term, maybe time windows more relevant to a, a wide variety of, of choices or decision contexts. My guess is that that's where a lot of climate assessment is going to go. 
like climate scientists have kind of solved the problem. Is there a human signal in the in the climate evolution? Even to some extent, what defines what defines our expectation for the next century or beyond? And so it, it seems like refining those views to, to regional scales or to new phenomena becomes like an, a very important task. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. There are two two resources. So the NASA one, which which I was involved with, is the smaller one that's focused on the sea level projections. There's also the IPCC Interactive Atlas, which has all of the climate variables. And and so I would say that that's um, you know these are both really important tools. And I think one of the things that has been I think I've become a person, you know, there's how do you get climate information if you're in Europe or the US where you have a lot of resources? Well, we have, a, we're not dependent upon the IPCC for US climate risk information, right? We've got things like national climate assessment, we have state and city climate assessments, but there's a lot of the world that doesn't have the sort of capacity that the US has. And so it's really valuable that the IPCC is putting effort into making it sort of regional information available to everybody. Yeah, so I think I think this sort of regional information, but I think it's also, you know, the IPCC has for the last 30 years been divided up into these working groups, right? Working group one looks at the physical science. That was our report that came out in August. Working group two looks at impacts and adaptation. That's coming out in February. Working group three looks at mitigation. That's coming out in March. But these are sort of arbitrary boundaries. And I think, you know, a lot of the interesting questions you know, don't really respect the boundaries between physical science and impacts and adaptation. That's certainly where a lot of my work is focused on bridging is bridging those two. And and also I think as we as we get into the business of sort of building infrastructure, the boundary between adaptation and mitigation becomes much fuzzier also. And so you know, the IPCC has had special reports, the special reports on ocean cryosphere and climate, or the special reports on, on warming of one and a half degrees C that cut across the working group boundaries. And I think at some level like that, really how probably I hope we should do more of that sort of work in the future, because I, I talk to people about the report that just came out. A lot of what people want to talk about are impacts and mitigation. And you know, I'm somebody who works in those areas and I'm comfortable talking about those. But that's not what the working group one report is just about the physical science. You know, I think it would be worth considering when the when the next report is due in another seven years, whether this structure is still serving best purposes of all the users of the IPCC report. Yeah, there you go. I mean, you don't have to convince me that work cross standing across working groups shouting, hey, y'all, is an important task. Yeah. Well, I should add that there has been, yeah, although the reports still have that structure this round, there has been a much more deliberate effort at bridging the working groups. There are handoff chapters. So for instance, the regional, the last couple of chapters of the working group one report are designed to inform the risk information in the working group two report. And I'm a contributing author uh, to some work on working group two on on sea level and on decision-making under deep uncertainty. So there's definitely a deliberate attempt to build more of those linkages, but I think it, you know, it's, it, it's a reasonable question as to whether the overall structure still serves the best purposes of everybody. I think that's a fair point. Not one of the things we have to do when we're projecting the future is understand the scenarios that we're projecting for. There's been, I think, some legitimate critique of IPCC architecture around what scenarios it chooses. And in particular, there's like an ongoing constant Twitter contest about whether or not RCP 8.5 or the SSP, the new scenario for high emissions, is an appropriate tool for for scientific use. You know, how do you see that conversation developing on the science side of things? You know, why is it scientifically interesting to use a high emissions scenario, even if you think we probably won't realize it? 
and how do you as a public communicator try and create clarity between sort of science fantasy or science fiction, excuse me. And how do you as a communicator try to create clarity between science fiction, which is interesting from a science perspective and a sort of reasonably well-calibrated set of expectations for the future? Yeah. Well, so first of all, working group one is the job of working group one is not just to say, you know, which scenario is, is most likely, right? If any working group, right, that's working group three, the mitigation working group. So it is useful to have for climate models to run high forcing scenarios because you get the largest signals and that allows you to understand the phenomena better. Now, it's important to recognize you, you said this is the IPCC structure. The IPCC's job is to assess the literature. It's a climate modeling community's job to, to create the scenarios and, and run them in their models. And that's a big elaborate enterprise. You, we have to do when we communicate, and I think that the Working Group One report has done this quite well, is communicate the range of responses. And so that involves looking at all of the scenarios from you know the what's now SSP 1 1.9, which is sort of the one of, of rapid emissions reductions to SSP 5 8.5, which is a very strong forcing one. You know, we have to sometimes make statements and for based on a limited subset of those because that's just what the literature supports. Like so, for instance, when we talk about you know, essentially breaking the ice sheets, right? Pushing things up to, to two meters. Uh, we talk about SSP 5, 8.5, because if we look at the literature, that's, you know, that's sort of the range we have to go on. But I think one of the other key innovations in this report, you know, is that we have the Ill illustrative scenarios that are run by the climate modeling enterprise, but there's a, also an attempt to use warming levels as a level of integration sort of parallel to that. So we talk about one and a half degrees, two degrees, three degrees, four degrees, five degrees Celsius of warming. What are what does that mean in terms of you know changes in temperature and precip at a, and, and changes in, in sea level? And I think that is frankly much, you know it's much easier to communicate with people about one and a half versus two versus three degrees of warming than it is about SSP two four point five and SSP three seven point And so I think that's you know I think that's an important thing. And if you want to assess whether or not the IPCC is fairly presenting it, you ought to be looking at the parts of the report that synthesize the literature into co into cogent statements, like so the summary for policymakers and the technical summary, you know. Do I don't think it, you know you would say in those we we put undue emphasis on any of them. I think they present a balanced projection of the range. If you look into the paragraph by paragraph analysis of the report, right, what you would expect to see is that that reflects what's run in the literature. And in the literature from the climate science modeling community, it's quite useful to have these strong forcing scenarios to help understand you know what's out there because you know one we can get to higher, you know, more strongly warm scenarios for reasons other than our emissions, right? If we're in the tail of climate sensitivity, for instance, or there's carbon cycle feedbacks that aren't captured, but also particularly if you're looking for say non-linearities in the climate system, it's quite likely that the climate models aren't necessarily producing those at the right levels of warming. And so you want to be able to identify and see where they emerge uh, so that you can then go and say, okay, well, what's actually driving those? And, you know, is that really something that only happens under eight degrees of warming or is it something that could be triggered earlier? Yeah, I think it's like we should be avoid being a little overly prescriptive about what business as usual ought to be, right? I think of these th things are the best when you kind of give you a whole picture of plausible climate response. Evolution of the energy system, it seems to be like one of the biggest uncertainties, but it's also the one of the ones that we get to control. So evaluating how the control of that system would work seems, you know, relatively important. I want to close a little bit on, on what you were talking about, nonlinearities in the climate system, 
tipping points. Uh, I know you've done some really excellent work both on con- how do we how do we think about tipping points as a conceptual object, right? That it's not this sort of day after tomorrow Hollywood film version where overnight the Atlantic no longer turns over and there's uh, half a mile of ice on top of New York City. Instead, there's like a harbingers of state change in the climate system is probably how I would put it. But if you think, you know, there's a more refined way to put it. And in the context that we've been talking about, sea level rise or others, you know, hopefully you and I are are, are around for most of the global warming that will be caused uh, by humanity. And, and so what are you keeping your eye out as a scientist? Yeah, well, so let's talk about tipping points. I think that's a term that I try to avoid and the IPCC actually doesn't use very much either mm-hmm. because it's used by so many different people in so many different ways. So when the IPCC talks about it, it instead tries to focus about the, on ideas like abrupt change or irreversible change rather than this sort of dynamic concept of a tipping point, which is sort of a critical threshold beyond which a system reorganizes in a way that is very fast or irreversible. So, so talking about you know, ocean circulation, paleoclimate evidence tells us that the Atlantic uh, meridional overturning circulation, of which the Gulf Stream is part, has changed rapidly in the past. And climate model projections and past trends lead us to think that it will weaken over this century. If it were to collapse, you know, it would make Europe warm more slowly. It would increase sea level rise over the U.S. Atlantic coast. It would shift storm tracks and monsoons. But most evidence indicates that such a collapse will not happen in the century, even under a very high emissions scenario, although that's a weaker statement in this report than in the last report. And then right, we talked about polar ice sheets, right? The potential for you know somewhere above two degrees C to start triggering feedbacks in Antarctica that could lead to much more rapid ice sheet loss. You know, I, I think what I'm watching for is really what people do, right? I mean, I think some of the these potential nonlinear changes in the climate system, for instance, in the Antarctic ice sheet, I'm much less worried about if we stabilize the climate at two degrees C than if we let it go beyond that. You know, if we let it go beyond that, we better figure try to put more effort into figuring out how much more beyond that we can go before we lock in, you know, the more multiple meters of sea level rise. But I think that's, you know, I, I think there there are a lot of interesting localized tipping points in the climate system. But I think that the big one is, you know, just what people are going to do. And do we push the climate system so much that that we can start to see a lot more of these nonlinearities? Or, you know, I think if we if we get things in hand, I think the tipping points I'm more concerned about really are how people respond. So what happens to our our governance systems, as we see more and more frequent and extensive extreme weather events, right? We don't, we know those are going to happen. How many of those can can our governance systems withstand? And I think that's the that's sort of the tipping point I'm concerned with on a on a few decades time scale. Um, and I think it's not you know it's not one that requires that much more from the physical science community. It's really a question uh, for social scientists and policy people to tell us. Well, I really appreciate that, Bob. And I think what we should do is pause the conversation here and and look forward to inviting you back to discuss the report from Working Group 2 on impacts and adaptation. Great. Thank you for joining us, Bob, and have a nice afternoon. Thanks to Dr. Kopp for joining us this week and sharing his insights on the IPCC report and climate policy more generally. We look forward to welcoming him back soon. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at csis.org. As always, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy, and thanks for listening.